you to, to Matthew for, for, for organising this and um, thank, thank you all for coming uh, and listening. Um, I, I did this, I read this out in my room about an hour ago and uh, slowly um, and it came to about 18 minutes so um, we're about 10 past four now. I'm very big on these things about stresses over time. So uh, I should finish about half past, uh, what time are we half past four? Um, the, the, this, the present, my presentation will, will consist of showing, first of all, showing a sequence from a Hollywood film, a famous Hollywood film, The Magnificent Ambersons, that was made in 1942 and directed by Orson Welles. Then I'll read out a passage. Now, that passage I have given in a handout, a one-sheet handout. Um, some of you, if it, some of you may have to share with other people, especially the people who have come in late, um, if you haven't got one. Um, it's the one that says description 81 at the top of it. Um, so then I'll read out a passage of criticism on the sequence, and then I'll draw out some features of this criticism. Um, this, the, the little presentation I'm doing is extracted from an essay of mine um, looking at the role of description in film criticism in a book I edited called The Language and Style of Film Criticism, and I apologise in advance for those who know it. I also apologise in advance to my film students, so I can see quite a few film faces in here, um, who will have experienced this sort of analysis before. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, with this critic, in fact. And I, I, I suppose I'm presenting this with an eye to those who may be less familiar, both with film criticism and the sort of comments I'm going to make. The critic is, the critic that my film students will be familiar with is V.F. Perkins, um, uh, and it comes from a BFI classic book. Um, I was specifically interested in revealing how his description of the scene brings out aspects of absence, but m also how more generally description is at the same time interpretation and evaluation, something maybe we can discuss later in uh, the discussion. Also, I think, um, I'm interested in a tension, not a problem, but some sort of tension between the ordinary language clarity of the passage, which nevertheless brings out suggestiveness and obliqueness. Um, and I think this is a trait that the critic thinks is a trait of this film, and many good films. Elsewhere, Perkins has a line where he says, many of the be best films marry a clarity with depth of suggestion, and that may be true of lots of artworks, uh, but not all of them, of course. Okay, so first of all, we're going to have a look at the sequence. Now, I apologise, technology is very low spec in here, and uh, um, you're going to have this horrible scarring at the top and bottom. I can feel Orson Welles wanting to kill me already. But um, can someone switch off the light at the back there? The scene is about two minutes long. The only bit of the plot I think we need to know is the nephew, uh, George Minifer, sort of tyrannical figure, to put it crudely, has stopped Joseph Cotton marrying his mother, who he loves, and also Lucy has had some affair with, with George, a sort of strange relationship. Um, so they're both, they've both got an interest in the George and Isabel, basically the woman that Joseph Cotton wanted. So, reading this out. When Uncle Jack, Ray Collins, reports to Eugene and Lucy, and Baxter, on what he has seen during a visit to Isabel and George in Paris, the camera stays rigidly fixed in its concentration on three similarly immobile figures. The setting is a grand reception room in Eugene's mansion, lit by electricity and with a fire burning in the chimney place in the far background. 
Jack is centred in the middle distance, sitting on a divan to the right of a low table. At right angles to him, away from the table, Eugene sits in a wing chair with his legs crossed and his hands folded in his lap, a posture that he holds throughout. Eugene's figure at the left of the picture is the most distant, but his face is fully lit and most plainly presented to the camera. Facing him, in the right foreground, at the near end of the divan, Lucy is attentive, but she neither moves nor speaks. With her head turned from the camera, she is a vital witnessing presence that make a difference to the ways in which Jack and Eugene can speak. If she were to intervene by so much as an intake of breath, the fact of it would be registered in the men's reactions. But our access to our expression is limited. We enter the scene on a dissolve, at a pause in an after-dinner conversation. Jack drains his coffee cup and replaces it on the tray with a care that excuses his glancing only briefly at Eugene, then Lucy as he starts to speak. Weighing his words, I found Isabel as well as usual, only I'm afraid as usual isn't particularly well. Two things are immediately apparent. The first is that the matter of Isabel has been avoided until the avoidance itself became too burdensome. The second is the delicacy of Jack's position, negotiating between the different responses, in each case predictably <coughs> complex and guarded, of father and daughter. Each of Ray Collins's movements, the actor in the middle, is eloquent, because when he avoids eye contact, he looks straight ahead in profile. If he addresses Eugene, his head turns away. His glances at Lucy create the moments when his face is most fully revealed to us. Since he looks at Lucy very little, avoidance is again given weight. As soon as Jack puts down the coffee cup, he reaches for a cigar, and though the rest of the exchange and through the rest of the exchange he works it between his fingers as a relief from the pressure of Eugene's gaze. The cigar gives him a reason to stay hunched forward, not to lean back, into a posture that would promote contact. Under Eugene's quiet prodding, Jack gives his view that Isabel would wish to return home if George would let her. The scene is holdingly, heartbreakingly quiet, visually as well as on the ear. The care put into the exercise of tact lets us see how embarrassed is the avoidance of embarrassment, but also how delicate is the mutual concern of these friends. Most of all, the rigid frame gives an image of paralysis in which the events are held. Submission to George, to Isabel's submission to George, has created a deadlock that only death will break. Even with so rooted a camera as Wells employs here, there is no case for condemning the long take as theatrical. The long take, in fact the duration of any shot, gains its effect in part from the continuous availability of the cut, just as the static camera works as, in part, a refusal of mobility. The mutually informing relationship between editing and the long take can be seen at work as our sequence starts and ends. We enter on a, on a silence into which, not prompted by any inquiry, Jack inserts his news of Isabel. The ellipse that finds Jack finishing his coffee and that passes over, for instance, the initial moments of his reunion with Eugene is eloquent that only now and at last are the subjects of most significance being broached and that nowhere has been found of speaking about Isabel to Eugene without talking to Lucy about George. The lack of movement at the fade-out on Eugene's word of assent uses the rhetoric of an ending to climax the sense of blockage. The meeting between the three is not over, but everything has been said and nothing is to be done. 
throughout the sequences, withholding of reaction shots, most blatantly of the reverse shot on Lucy, shows Wells exploiting the disadvantage of the long take, its lack of flexibility in the presentation of face-to-face encounters. Perkins writes that each of Ray Collins's movements on line 24 and 25 is eloquent, because when he avoids eye contact, he looks straight ahead in profile. And straight ahead in profile is an unusual juxtaposition. It is fitting for the scene, however, and for Perkins's account, that looking straight ahead entails an avoidance. In simple and ordinary language, it captures Collins's positioning in relation to the other performers and the camera, and the way the scene makes us contemplate it multidimensionally. It expresses complexity of position and composition without the need for geometrical or technological vocabulary. Nor does it surrender to that conceptual abstraction commonly used in film studies, space, which would be insensitive to the scene's grieving tone. The neatness and concision of the writing matches Collins's head movements and, like them, is eloquent. It's also discreet and modest. On line 9 and 10, Perkins draws out a series of apparently contradictory characteristics of presentation that trouble our sense of prominence. Although Eugene's face is most plainly presented, his figure is the most distant. Perkins avoiding the straightforward parallels that are sometimes made in criticism, for example, that the character farthest away is necessarily the least noticeable. Presenting and withholding are complexly related in this passage. Most important in this regard is the figure of Lucy, to whom Perkins is attentive, just as Lucy is attentive on on line 11, even though... She neither moves nor speaks. Her witnessing on line 12 becomes vital, emphasising that silence and stillness can be emphatic, but also that the passive is actively present. There is the recognition of that which does not happen and the potential of her intervention. One may view the scene and sense Lucy's presence, but not be as mindful as Perkins. Because he wants us to recognise her importance, his commentary, by commenting, makes her more conspicuous. The film resists such emphasis because it would compromise the quietness on which the effect of her presence depends. Here we see an example of the descriptive critic working on behalf of the film continuing its work, especially in those places where the film relies on the possibility that significance may be disregarded. Description is not simply a matter of telling us accurately or evocatively what we can see, but what we may come to see. The description of the film is often relating simultaneously what we have seen and what we have yet to see thus challenging our sense of the obvious. Perkins injects the strength of the possible into his strength of the possible into his description, while remaining faithful to the muted nature of the actual. With on line fourteen, 
if she were to intervene by so much of an intake of breath. He renders the slight, the deviation, and the imagined melodramatically. Yet he quickly calms things down on the other side of the semicolon, but our access to her expression is limited with the visible and invisible matter of fact. At the start of the passage, Perkins sets the scene not simply for clarity of exposition, but to show that the scene is set. The writing lays out the characters' positions carefully, because carefulness of positioning and otherwise, by character and film, is pervasive. Even though the two-minute sequence is simply three people sitting in a reception room, Perkins conveys it as heavy and strenuous. However, he does not state explicitly that this is the tone of the scene, but embeds it, but embeds the sense in his vocabulary and syntax. The paragraph contains words like weighing, weight, burdensome, works, hunched and pressure, all in different contexts. Thus, aspects of the scene are described in such a way as to subliminally convey the mood. On, on line 17, Jack drains his coffee cup and replaces it on the tray with a care that excuses his glancing only briefly at Eugene, then Lucy, as he starts to speak. The sentence is straining, a little awkward, rhythmically uneasy, and reflects Jack's difficult negotiation. Later, rather than merely saying on, on line 50 that no way has been found of speaking about the difficult or tangled relationships, Perkins writes, instead, no way has been found of speaking about Isabel to Eugene without talking to Lucy about George. The naming of the characters, needless by this stage for explication, gives us the terms of a complex equation and conveys the protraction. It is also expressed in the parlance of a difficult riddle. Perkins writes on line 36 that characters show not only tact, but the exercise of tact, and more, the care put into the exercise. This is true of the characters, the performers, the rest of the film, and the criticism too. One can see in this clause, and the writing throughout, not simply care or tact but something more careful and effortful, the care put into the exercise of tact. Perkins often adds one more stage into a clause to provide the sense of a succession of elements qualifying and modifying. The words keep speaking back to each other and it complicates progression so that sentences do not travel straightforwardly to conclusion or completion. Such sentences are ideal for describing films that dramatise impediment, ones like The Magnificent Ambersons, which are retarding narrative propulsion. On line 53, we have the rhetoric of an ending to climax the sense of blockage. The rhetoric of an ending to climax the sense of blockage, where the rhetoric of and the sense of are used to modify. These adjustments make an ending and blockage appear less straightforwardly final and obstructing, while, at the same time, their complicating presence makes moving forward appear ever more forlorn. The rigid frame on line 38 
does not only show us paralysis, but gives us an image of it, where the word image is retrieved from its habitual use in film discussion and its static quality re-established and emphasised. The scene's paralysis is fittingly caught and held in holdingly on line 35, a word which not only describes the holding quality, but expresses it because of the extension of a syllable, holdingly. It holds on for longer. Everyone, including the critic, is holding their breath. The word is unusual, is it invented by the writer, but it's brought into the fold by the more common and obviously sentimental, heartbreakingly, which which it shares opening and closing letters. The variations on avoid mean that the concept becomes increasingly burdensome with avoided, avoidance, avoid, and avoidance is again given weight. Furthermore, on line 36, sorry, on 27, avoided until the avoidance itself became too burdensome, is remembered in a later similar construction on line 36 with how embarrassed is the avoidance of embarrassment. Final paragraph. Perkins' descriptions are always aware of and build in the alternative possibilities for presentation as he understands these to be intrinsic to how a fictional world operates. Important to him is what the fictional world has established as probable and therefore can choose to omit. So the withholding is as emphatic as anything we actually see. The ellipse is eloquent. The imagined pervades the actual scene. For example, the initial moments of Jack's reunion with Eugene. The long take gains its effect from the availability of the cut and its lack of flexibility. And the static camera works in part as a refusal of mobility. The possible and the available, but not shown. The avoided and the absent are ever-present aspects in a film and part of one's experience. They also influence one's judgment of its achievement. Perkins demonstrates that good description does not only convey what is literally present in a film or evoke to make a film present. It puts the matter of what is present at stake. Thank you.